The following is a message from Wellsprings Congregation. All right, have we cleared the room of everyone who believes in Santa? (laughs) Or at least everyone conscious enough to remember at this point in their lives, right? I see one very little one. Earmuffs, good, good. It's a multi-stage process, letting you all know what we were talking about this week. So I want to begin with a true story. Some of you know that a couple years back, I had a job working at Swarthmore College nearby in their admissions office. And we had a handful of students who worked in our office with us. They gave tours. They were there in part to tell stories about what it was like to be a student. And so sometimes they would sit around together and they would practice. They would share the kinds of questions that they got from families who visited and tell stories to each other. So one time they were sitting around in the office and the question that they were working with was one that we got a lot from families, something along the lines of, was there a moment when you realized here at college that you were kind of in over your head or where you suddenly felt like this is not like high school anymore, this is challenging? And one of the students started cracking up, burst out laughing. And she said, this isn't exactly what you mean, but I definitely have a story about this. Her name was Lainey. And when Lainey went to her first year biology class at Swarthmore, she was sitting through a lecture one day about the ways that different kinds of animals navigate in the dark, right? So some animals have adapted their vision to be able to see in the dark. Some animals have different ways that they use their bodies to navigate and move around when there's no light or very low light conditions. And so they were talking about bats, and bats use kind of a sonar, right? Sort of like whales, they, they bounce waves out and then they, they get information back that tells them where they are in the world. And so the professor was finishing up this lecture about bats and how they navigate and asked if there were any questions. And the students had some questions here and there. And after about three or four of these, Lainey raised her hand and said, you know, I, I understand the concept, I don't have any questions. I just think it's funny that you know, we're, we're using the example of bats to illustrate this concept because bats aren't even real animals. And the professor said, what? She said, you know, bats, are, they're not even real. They're like Halloween animals, you know? They're like werewolves or, or mummies. It's funny that we were using that as an example. And the professor said, Lainey, bats are real. And she said, no, they're not. Come on. And everyone in the class said, no, Lainey, really? Bats are real animals, we promise. And she said to the group of students sitting around the office, and that was how I learned at age 18 that bats are real. (laughs) Swarthmore is a very selective school, by the way, so if you ever denied admission from a selective school, I hope you feel a little better about yourselves (laughs) now. This story about Lainey and the bats this entire message series, right, about fairy tales, it begs the question, why do we do this to our children? Why do we intentionally confuse them with these stories at a time when developmentally they're struggling anyway, right, with figuring out the difference between what is fantasy and what is real? And perhaps nowhere is this question more urgent for us at this moment than with this guy, right, Santa. I am in my mid-30s, and I have a number of friends with little kids, and the debates are very real amongst them of what to do with Santa. 
How do we do this? How, especially if our our child or in our family we are Jewish or Muslim or have Jewish or Muslim friends, how do we navigate this story? How would we even control it, considering it's so out there in the world? What if we tell our child one thing and they ruin it for somebody else? And now, nowadays, you poor parents, you also have to deal with the elf, right? Right. (laughs) It's not even just Santa anymore. So before we go any further, I should confess to you. For my entire life, for some reason, I was born this way, I was wired this way. I have a very hard reality bias. Even when I was a little kid, I would go into the children's library and I would run towards the nonfiction section for little kids. I loved learning about the real world and hearing real stories about real people. And again, for some reason, that continues to this day. I am not going to go see the new Star Wars movie. I'm not. I'm sorry. Boo, I know. I, I only saw one of the Harry Potter movies. Yeah. I am not that interested. <laughs> I hope I still have a job next week after confessing that to you. Even in my, book, uh, in my bookshelves today, I have five bookshelves, all with four shelves on them. My fiction books, I counted them up yesterday, 14 fiction books. They fit on half of one shelf. But even I have to acknowledge that imagination is a part of our human experience. We all have an imagination, and whether we let it roam very, very free or whether we keep it tethered pretty close to our reality, part of our humanness is to imagine stories beyond what is real. Imagining stories beyond what is really here for us right now. This is not something that we could get rid of even if we wanted to. I practice mindfulness meditation as one of my spiritual practices. And in mindfulness meditation, typically I sit, I set a timer for 20 minutes, I close my eyes, and I use my breath as the anchor to the present moment. I breathe in and out, and I notice the sensations, the physical sensations of breathing, the air in my nostrils, my chest rising and falling. And I use my breath as an anchor because it is a reliable way to come back to the present moment. Because one of the things that mindfulness meditation does is help us see how much we don't live in the present moment. My mind will wander hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times in that 20 minutes. And very often, probably for me, 70% of the time, It is imagining the future. It's imagining how something will turn out. It's imagining how a conversation I want to have might go. Even with my hard reality bias, I tell myself stories all the time. And maybe your practice isn't mindfulness meditation, but I bet that you have daydreamed at some point in your life. Maybe as you drive to work, or as you do the dishes, without any conscious effort on your part, right? You just find that your brains do this. The same way that they tell your heart to beat and they tell your lungs to take in air and they tell your body to digest food and your skin to sweat. 
Our brains tell stories. And they imagine. We can't help it. I have a a friend who works professionally in theater. And I was confessing him to him recently this this reality bias that I have and how I don't really enjoy fictional stories. And it got a little awkward because I started to realize I was basically telling him I didn't understand the purpose of his life's work. Um, And he very kindly, very kindly pointed something out to me that I'd never considered before. He said, you know, if the arts didn't exist, right, if literature and theater and film didn't exist at all, the only imaginative storytelling we'd probably have in our world would be through advertising. Yeah. My personal preferences for entertainment may not ever change, but my appreciation for the value of what he does and what the people who tell stories intentionally to us do very much shifted after that conversation. Imagination is an eternal force in our universe. We wonder, we begin to craft stories. It is a process of creation. So how are we going to use this natural impulse that we have? Now for our kids, they inherit a lot of these stories, right? None of my friends decided they're going to sit down their kid and introduce them to Santa Claus, right? More often than not, their child ran home having seen a Santa or having heard something from a friend. They saw his picture. And it makes me wonder if these inherited stories like Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy or the Easter Bunny or all of our fairy tales, it makes me wonder if maybe without us intending it, those are actually teaching tools developmentally for our kids. Maybe those are a safe way to expose children to that first experience of disillusionment, that first experience of finding out something we believed in isn't really true. Because we will all have those experiences throughout our lives. Maybe we all need to practice growing up for those bigger disillusionments that we'll encounter. Maybe we need to practice so that we have ways to remember that we have the power to craft those stories out of disappointment into stories of meaning. And maybe eventually even into gifts that we can pass on. There is a story about Santa Claus that has been going around on social media for the past year. You might have seen it. Now, with my hard reality bias, part of me, of course, said, I don't know if this story is real. I bet somebody made it up. But it turns out the Washington Post, journalists, hard reality bias like me, actually went and investigated and found the family that this story originated from. They're right there. That's their 80s-tastic Christmas picture. It's the Rush family. The mom in the middle there is Leslie Rush, and on her left is her son Adam when he was about seven or eight years old. Leslie first shared this story a few years ago, actually. It's kind of come back around through the the magic of the Internet, but she shared this story on a forum online for parents 
who were talking about what to do in that moment when your child starts to realize something is up with this Santa Claus story. She told a story that was a lot more complicated than some of the other parents, but really lovely. She said, when my son Adam started to get that knowing look when he was about seven or eight years old, I decided that I would invite him out for coffee. He got a hot chocolate. We sat down at a very adult cafe together. And I told him, you know, I can see that you are figuring some things out about Santa Claus. So I think you're ready. I think you're ready to be invited, along with all the rest of us grown-ups, to become a Santa Claus. You see, Santa is this character, right, that we've talked about. But he's not one man. He's not one person. He's a character that is an embodiment of this big collective spirit of giving over the holidays. And because you are starting to figure out how all of this works, I wanted to give you your first chance, your first assignment, to see if you're ready to become a Santa Claus like the rest of us. She said, what you have to do is pick someone out, someone in your life who you think might like to receive a gift. He thought for a while. He said, you know, I think my neighbor, the woman who lives on the corner, Mom, the one who's always really mean to us, who yells at us when we come onto her lawn, maybe I'll get her a gift. She could probably use some kindness. His mom said, that sounds perfect. So now what you have to do is pay attention. You have to look and watch and see if there's something that you think she might like to receive. And so Adam took a couple days, and then he showed up at his mom's door one morning and said, Mom, I've thought about it, and I watched. I noticed that every morning she gets up and she goes outside to get the paper, but she doesn't have anything on her feet. And sometimes it's cold or it's rainy. What if I got her some slippers? And so they went out and they bought slippers. They wrapped them up, and he wrote, From Santa, on the tag. And they snuck over onto her property when she wasn't there, put them on her doorstep. The next morning, Adam woke up early. He sat at the window waiting to see what would happen. And lo and behold, the neighbor came out of her front door, down the driveway to get the paper, wearing the slippers that Santa had brought her. And he was thrilled. He had become a Santa. The Washington Post article, when they found this family, Adam is now in his 30s, and he has a son named Tristan, who's just about the age that he was when he got invited to become a Santa. He said, it's so funny how things work that this story got popular again just as I'm getting ready to invite my own son into this tradition. Now, I think that this story has gotten popular in part because it's a really good, convenient way to reframe that Santa story for your kid, right? It's lovely, and it also lets everybody off the hook. (laughs) The goodness of the illusion is preserved, right? It's still there. But it's also, in many ways, true. Santa is this character, this embodiment of the spirit of generosity and what it means to give and notice and care about what someone might want to receive. 
I think that spirit of what Santa is is what is actually in our hearts when we have a gift for someone small or maybe not so small in our lives and write from Santa on it. Instead of Santa being a lie, the invitation to become a Santa turns it into a gift that was maybe just bigger and different than we first understood. What wonderful practice for a child or for any of us to learn early on that we can respond to disillusionment by learning something, by better understanding where the heart and the beauty in that illusion actually came from, by better understanding that that heart and that beauty in that illusion isn't limited to one particular story or one particular character or circumstance, but that the beauty and the heart of it was created by people like us. And so when we are disillusioned, we realize we can recreate the beauty and the heart as well. There's a writer named Courtney Sieberling. Actually, go forward two slides so we can see her. This is her when she was about probably six or seven there, with her dad, who looks about 14. (laughs) No judgment, just saying. It's an old picture. She has kids of her own now, too. She wrote down this story of something that happened to her when she turned eight. She said, when I turned eight, my parents took me to the circus. There was more color than in real life, and the tent was twice as tall as the ceilings at the grocery store. Trapeze artists swung from the ropes and they twisted into these contortions that were more complicated than what my dog did at home. But what really thrilled me most was the unicorn. Go back. A fluffy-maned unicorn clomped its way onto the circus stage, into the spotlight. She said his long horn swirled around itself like a twisted lollipop making me believe that anything could happen, just like my parents had said when I told them I wanted to be the first female president. The ringmaster asked for a volunteer from the crowd to come and touch the unicorn. I looked at each of my parents, she said, for permission to raise my hand. And my mom said, go ahead. And my father nudged my arm up in the air. Hundreds of kids in the crowd were reaching their hands up to the sky, hoping to be called on as the drum roll rounded the room. And when the cymbals crashed, the ringmaster was pointing at me. My father lifted me up from my armpits and ushered me down the bleacher steps until I was standing on that hay-crusted floor. And the ringmaster asked me for my name. She said, I'm Courtney from Lancaster. As my eyes adjusted to the light, she said, I found my father to make sure it was okay to answer him. This wasn't stranger danger. This was destiny. I was going to pet a unicorn. (laughs) The ringmaster's assistant, a kind-voiced woman with a lot of makeup and a lot of spangly stuff on her outfit, knelt down and told me how to approach the animal. I placed the back of my wrist upon the unicorn's neck, and I stroked downward with my fingers. The hair was less coarse than it looked 
and its muscles were curved and firm. She said, a white dust began flaking off onto my hand, and I wondered what kind of powers I might absorb from this unicorn, just as the music started up again. That sparkly assistant took my hand, and we began a procession behind the unicorn, circling the arena. She said, I searched the crowd for my mom's purple sweater, and I found her and my dad in it, and I could tell that they were proud. After the parade, the ringmaster handed me a certificate, and the audience clapped. And I waved a final wave, and my dad came down to the rim of the audience to snap a photograph. Now I waited, she said, until the next time my class had a show-and-tell day. And I put on that pink Ringling Brothers t-shirt, and I brought my certificate. And I waited, she said, until everybody else in the class had gone and shown little things. I made sure I was last. And I got up front very seriously and said, I got to pet a unicorn. Hands shot up with questions from her class. But her teacher said, oh, Courtney, that wasn't really a unicorn. Unicorns aren't real. It was probably a goat with a horn glued to its head. She was devastated. She was so embarrassed, she went and sat back down. And when she got home, she shoved that T-shirt and that certificate in a drawer and never wanted to see it again. But she said something about this idea of magic stayed with me. I wanted to create it. I wanted to be a part of it. She said, I think that's why I started writing. I think that's why I got involved in theater and music in school. And then something else happened. My junior year of high school, my father got sick. My healthy, loving dad had bone marrow cancer. She said he passed away in a hospital room when I was at home. I don't know what I was doing when my dad took his last breath. My mom came home and told us the news. And she said part of my grief was that I couldn't accept what had happened. I couldn't accept the reality of my new life without my dad. She said, this went on for a couple years, and I went off to college. And I didn't go out to parties, and I didn't go out and join clubs like all my friends. I hung up pictures of my dad on the wall. And I made friends, she said, with anybody who would come to my room. I would show them my whole museum. I would tell stories about my dad. I would flip through yearbooks and old photo albums. And I met so many kind people that first year who listened to me. But she said, I realized eventually that I wasn't actually living in the real world. All those photos, those yearbooks were like portals that I thought could take me back to what it was like to have not lost so much. But all it did was remind me of what I'd had that wasn't here anymore. So she said, one year I finally took all those yearbooks and albums home on a break. And when I came back, I started going to parties. 
and auditioning for plays and talking about bands. I would stay up late and get up early to run and feel the cold air punch my lungs and remind me how wonderful it was to be alive. She said a funny thing started to happen. My dad started to show up. He showed up in a song on the radio or in the way that I took my coffee. Just like he was in the crowd at the circus that day, he showed up often as a nudge of encouragement for everything that's possible. Or he showed up as a reminder of all that isn't. He showed up as a reminder that things end. But she said that something else always begins. And that there is some kind of magic to all of that. Because I am a minister, people of all ages still ask me if things are real. They ask if angels are real, if heaven is real, spirits, ghosts, God. The truest answer, of course, is I don't know. But what I've learned is that my answer is pretty irrelevant. Because I think what folks are really asking is when we get behind the magic of our illusions, when the stories end and reality smacks us in the face, can we still have hope? Is there hope beyond our disillusionment? I have seen the answer to that be yes. And so that's something I can say with confidence. That after disillusionment, we have a choice. We can join in helping to create the world that we hope to see. It's just that tension between reality and our imagination that actually helps us move forward and get there. The author Václav Havel has my favorite definition of hope. He says, hope is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something makes sense regardless of how it turns out. Hope is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something makes sense regardless of how it turns out. We have hope not because we know that that world we want will come true, but because we trust that it will be worth pouring our hearts into regardless. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Will you pray with me? God of all things, beyond our understanding, God of the stories that we tell, the stories we inherit, God who is present in those moments, 
when something we believed in shows itself as an illusion. May we remember that this world that surrounds us is filled with things that are real and unreal to us. This world that surrounds us is filled with things that we understand and things that we don't. It's filled with the magic of a collective power of people who recycle and tell these stories over and over again for reasons that may not make sense to us, but there are some reasons behind it. And may we remember that just because something doesn't turn out as we might have hoped, that the story is not over. For these prayers, I prayed out loud, and for the prayers each of these people carry on their hearts, we say amen. If you enjoyed this message and would like to support the mission of Wellsprings, go to our website, wellspringsuu.org. That's wellsprings, the letters uu.org.